Dear artists, welcome to another episode of the From the Ground Up podcast produced for HowlRound Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theatre makers worldwide. I'm your host, Jeffrey Moser, recording from the ancestral homelands of the Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee, now known as Milwaukee, Wisconsin. These episodes are shared digitally to the internet. Let's take a moment to consider the legacy of colonization embedded within the technology, structure, and ways of thinking that we use every day. We are using equipment and high-speed internet not available in many indigenous communities. Even the technologies that are central to much of the work we make leave a significant carbon footprint contributing to climate change that disproportionately affects indigenous people worldwide. I invite you to join me in acknowledging the truth and violence perpetrated in the name of this country as well as our shared responsibility to make good of this time and for each of us to consider our roles in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Dear artists, this is a big fish. Bob Leonard, a founder of so many things ensemble, has had his hands in the creation of the network of ensemble theaters and alternate roots. He also invokes so many names, including Stephen Kent, a prolific creator, someone who has touched companies we've interviewed, including Urban Bushwomen, again, season three, episode one, and Junebug Productions, season one, episode six. He is also a prominent member at Alternate Roots, which is one of the big arenas we will discuss with Bob today. I'll leave some info about him in the show page. Bob also mentions Jeremy Rifkin and the People's Bicentennial Commission, a figure that I didn't know much about until I started my own Google searches. There are so many other organizations and people he mentions, including Joe Carson, The Living Theater, The San Francisco Mind Troupe, Bread and Puppet, Bob Alexander in the Living Stage Improv Theater, Augusto Boal, Paulo Fieri, Miles Horton, the Highlander Folk School, and past members of the Network of Ensemble Theater boards Lisa Mount, Carlton Turner, and Linda Paris Bailey. While you don't need to know everything about everyone here to enjoy this conversation, I will be sure to link things to all of them on the show page at howround.com. I say all of this in advance in order that I might tell you that speaking with Bob was like speaking with the Encyclopedia Britannica of Ensemble Theater. You read one little thing that has about 15 footnotes, and then each of them are also the makeup of the American Ensemble experience. Fascinating, to me at least. He also mentions Rhiannon Giddens, who is now in heavy rotation on my Spotify. So that's a fun reference in here as well. A quick note to y'all. Uh, I had significant audio issues in the recording of this episode. I don't know what it was. Uh, this is one of my first interviews with a new computer, so I'm not exactly sure what happened. So I hope you can forgive me when my voice gets a bit choppy about 40 minutes in. Deal? Okay, thanks. I'm so sorry. Again, I'm trying to deal with it. I'm trying to figure it all out, y'all. Also, Bob wants me to tell you that he misspoke in the episode. He said supreme carrot when he meant to say sublime carrot. All right, cool. Uh, That's a neat little Easter egg for you to figure out what that's all about when we get to it. To those of you who really look forward to the sound check lightning round at the end, you're going to be a little bit disappointed as we actually include it at the beginning of this episode. Uh, I do like to ask all of my guests, what does ensemble mean to you? And the way that Bob responded to this was such a great transition into our actual conversation that I just wanted to keep it at the top of our episode today. 
The question is so fascinating to me because it actually tells me something about the interview I'm about to have. It's like sort of a Rorschach test, right? Uh, and so I love that Bob will come right out of the gates and basically open up our episode with it. Okay, that's about all for now. Please join me in listening to Bob Leonard, legend of the ensemble theater world and teacher at Virginia Tech University. Zooming in from the Monoton and Tudelo lands, we chatted on October 6th, 2022. Can you tell me your favorite salutation, how you greet people? Uh, hey, it's usually something I do, or hey there. What's your favorite exclamation? Cool. How about favorite transportation? I really love my little pickup. How about, uh, how about your favorite ice cream? Chocolate, but it goes right to my nose. I wear it like a, a teenager. <laughs> what does the word ensemble mean to you? Oh, well, here we go. <laughs> ensemble, <clears throat> when applied to theater, I think ensemble has been around for a while in the music world, referring to a group of musicians who are uh, not conducted by a director, um, but are uh, self conducted on um, that sort of an old uh, an old classical uh, music frame of course jazz is uh, ensembles are also it's, it's possible to speak about jazz ensembles and again it has to do with the collective guidance of the music rather than a particular conductor or lead in the theater it's another place but Theater has a long, relatively recent affection with the director. And organizing of theater has been predicated around an artistic leader, uh, whether it's called artistic director, producer, executive director, something like that, in which the flow of, of organizational direction is top down. Um, and within that, there can be an acknowledgement that the creative process is not necessarily top down, but there's very often a kind of assumption in contemporary, if you will, mainstream thinking that the director runs the show. And ensemble in the theater is relative to music, use of that term in music, quite recent. When I started out with my company, I tended to use the word troupe. We were a troupe or a company but not in the sense of, a, of an incorporation, but in the sense of a company of people. We didn't use the term ensemble, but when ensemble started becoming around, I realized that's indeed what we were, <laughs> even though we didn't call ourselves that. And over time, I've become more rigorous, particularly in the, in the conversations that uh, emerged uh, as we were trying to put together the network of ensemble theaters. Okay, what is it we're talking about? <laughs> Yeah, And um, I think this is true for in the music world as well. But the the commitment of a group of artists, theater artists in this case, to a long term inquiry uh, into the making of theater that is collective in nature, that, that there is a a collective whole, uh, who, whomever that group might be, and that it that collectiveness also begins to inform the organizational structure. However, I think that there is a pretty good range within the practice of ensemble theater making that includes some form of a, of a vertical structure of power. That has to do with how the, how the group chooses to do. They, I think it's possible to maintain a collective artistic 
voice in both the immediate um, iteration of any particular work and a long-term growth of the company, of the group, without having it necessarily mean that you don't have any titled functions. I mean, some some folks just say, okay, we're, there there is no director, there is no um, hierarchy. Everybody does, you know, pitches in and does everything. But many people find that they're more comfortable when there are assigned functions. A, a, a really dear man, a mentor of mine, a colleague by the name of Steve Kent, liked to make a very careful distinction between role and function. I have I have held to that pretty strongly myself. There, there are different functions that need to get done. And some people are more able to do a particular function than others. That's just part of reality. But that doesn't mean that there is a role, that is to say a character quality, a some form of distinctive personality associated with doing a function. Whereas if we talk about roles, then then we're starting to talk about more than just the task. We're talking about a sense of the definition of the person involved. And it oftentimes falls into an area of power. So there are people who understand the distinction and can carry a function of directing a play without assuming the role of being a director. And I really like that thinking. I think that it it permeates um, the constant experiment that ensemble making Ensemble theater making actually is how, how how do we actually allow for our individual voices to have presence and 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 uh, some form of equitable equitable weight uh, and also at the same time work as efficiently and effectively as we can because there are so many places that we could start and you also already alluded to uh, the network of network of ensemble theaters which I have a question about for you as well but you know I'd really like to know what was the impulse to start the road company in 1975 and what were you making and and who are you making it for right so the roots of of my company or I should say not so much the roots but the soil of my company uh, included an organization in Washington, D.C. called the People's Bicentennial Commission. And I started work on what became the company with the People's Bicentennial Commission in, I think, 1972. Might have been 1971, but uh, long and short of it, 1976 was identified as the bicentennial of the Declaration of Independence and the sense of the beginnings of this country. The Nixon administration had established a Bicentennial Commission to kind of lead the way for federal recognition of that uh, time. And a small group of people that I have didn't know had formed a People's Bicentennial Commission, either just before or just as the federal Bicentennial Commission was coming into play. So in 1971 or something. And Jeremy Rifkin uh, was the lead the executive director of the People's Bicentennial Commission. He's working with several other people. And he and they were imagining to be able to take advantage of 1976 as a time for the public in this country to really develop an understanding and, and celebrate a popular revolution. Um, what does that mean? What, what, is, what, is, what does revolution in our history mean to us? And how are we carrying out how do we understand the principles of that revolution and how are we carrying them out? And do they still govern? Are, are they there? Was the revolution good or not good? I mean, all those questions. Well, at the time, I had gotten kind of fed up with the system of theater making 
I was still very young. I was still very green. I wanted to direct. Um, I didn't know how to start directing. I didn't know how to get a job as a director. I've been stage managing. And I, in my innocence, thought that stage management led by virtue of some form of seniority to becoming a director. And when I began to realize that that was entirely a, a fantasy of my own creation, I basically left the theater. I was working in film as a, as a crew and producing team and so forth and so on in Washington, D.C. And, and um, I became, I found myself with time for the first time since I was working in theater, uh, because working in theater just so often means you're working on the show and there's nothing else in the world but the show that you're working on and you're working like 19 hours out, out of 24 or maybe even 26 hours out of 24. And when you do have some time off, all you want to do is drop over and sleep or go drinking or just uh, that. So in the, in the film world, I got much better pay for much less time. And I had time on my hands to do what I wanted to do. And I became interested in the history of actually the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, which goes through Georgetown in, in D.C. And I, I learned that the canal was being built back in the day by people who were trying to figure out how to get produce and other forms of, of product from the interior of the United States to the market and particularly to sailing vessels to where trade happened. And um, the Appalachian Mountains represented a real problem for that. And they were imagining running a canal with a system of locks over the Appalachian Mountains into the Ohio Valley. That was a huge engineering task, but that's what they were up to. And they well could have completed that, except that the steam engine uh, came along uh, and, and consequently railroads. And so the uh, wisdom prevailed instead of trying to run a waterway over the mountain, they put in but that's later. I was interested in, in the exploration, the development of the white migration into the continent of this United States and what it was like. Who, who were the people doing this? Not the big people in Philadelphia, but the people actually out, because I come from uh, Western Massachusetts in the rural part of Massachusetts and have, have an affection for the East Coast mountains, the whole, the whole range, and have always lived in that sphere. So that's what I was interested in. And I heard about the People's Bicentennial Commission, and they sounded interesting to me. So I went down. I thought I was going to lick stamps and, and you know, do, do stuff as a volunteer. And Jeremy asked me what I did, and I, I made what you might call the mistake of saying, well, I was in the theater. Before I could finish my words, he said, would you make a play? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not a playwright, but uh, sure, why, why not? Because I had this thing going on in my head. I was doing a little research on stories coming out of the canal. And we talked and, and we eventually, uh, I eventually found some actors. I didn't know any particular playwrights doing the kind of work that we were talking about doing. But I reached out to a friend of mine from a school, uh, Michael Christopher, who was a playwright and a script, a script writer, as well as an actor. I invited Michael to come to a uh, improv work uh, rehearsal. I had found some actors and we were using Viola Spolin's improvisation for the theater. Um, and I was using those games as a set of exercises to open up a an actor-based uh, script process, scripting process. We didn't have the word devising. It was nowhere in sight. But um, I, I imagined not to use improvisation to do comedy, but 
that we would improvise our way into a script. So I invited Michael to come and see a, a rehearsal, or, and he got interested in it. And he wrote a play based on the the, the improvs that we were doing called Americomedia, um, which was a fully uneducated experiment with Commedia dell'arte using American uh, stock characters, Yankee Doodle and Miss Liberty, for example. And we were, uh, you, so we were just wanting to tell the story about ordinary folks in the middle of a revolution dealing with powers of government um, and how they were handling it. And we toured that play around the East Coast uh, with, the, uh, with the various uh, apparatus of the People's Bicentennial Commission. And uh, the, the commission, the People's Bicentennial Commission, was attempting to set up little, not little, but, but local and, and um, specific community chapters, if you will, or offices for people who were interested in utilizing the, the bicentennial as a, as a way of organizing. So we were, we were touring to those sites in various communities up and down the East Coast to use the play, to share our thinking, and to celebrate what we were imagining as a, as a time for the bicentennial, and uh, helping to organize at the local level. And um, we had a pretty good time. Um, we were we played uh, in Maine and Vermont and uh, New Jersey and um, New York City and out in the country and went on down into uh, North Carolina and Atlanta and Atlanta. In the course of that, I met people in the South Mountains who were utilizing art as a way to give expression to to people's yearning, people's needs, to people's pain and grief. Hammer dulcimer artists, ballad singers, poets, storytellers. And I got really inspired. And I started looking, I had been looking at various places, starting with the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, but, but also just where do I find out? Where do I look? And I began to realize local history societies have a lot of information. So I spent a while hitchhiking in South Central Appalachia, and I was going to historical societies and colleges that had theater departments. And I was doing improv workshops in colleges that had, had theater departments, openly saying, I'm looking for actors who'd be interested in working on a project. But, uh, you know, the trade-off was I was not it wasn't exactly an audition. It was it was a, an improv workshop for, for the whole department. And I ran into many, many, many stories, as well as many people who, who were curious about the project I was imagining. And I found myself drawn to the history of Tennessee, was preceded by a state that existed for a, a dozen years or so called Franklin. And it was created before... Uh, the revolution because the agreements between the French crown and the English crown changed the colonial boundaries. North Carolina was at one time all the way out to the Mississippi and the so-called French and Indian War, the treaty that ended that war, moved the North Carolina border from the Mississippi back to the um, Eastern divide, which left the people that were living in that area thinking that they were under the English crown without a nation. And so they created their own nation called Franklin. Wow. And I became, I mean, now I just, I was like, okay. <laughs> so that was what we were doing to start with is, is developing stories, plays, 
around those that history. And I moved in the process of this, I moved first from DC to Knoxville in, in East Tennessee, and then subsequently to Johnson City, Tennessee. Johnson City is in Washington County. The county seat is Jonesboro. And Jonesboro was the capital state of Franklin. And I just, I, I needed to go there. But I had met people from Johnson City entirely coincidentally uh, in various places. And I was drawn to Johnson City because of the people I met. When I was working with the People's Bicentennial Commission, we did a big project in Boston around the celebration of the Tea Party, the, the uh, act back in, the, in 1773 uh, to put dump tea into the Boston Harbor. So we, we reenacted that act, uh, dumping oil barrels uh, or empty uh, oil, you know, 55 gallon drums of uh, oil barrels into Boston Harbor to kind of parallel or, or equate or connect the um, taxation issues and so forth and the international web of tea and oil and the relationship of all that international power with the ordinary citizen. So we had this big event in, in Boston and um, in, in organizing that event, I met a man by the name of Ed Snodderly, who was a guitar, wonderful guitar player and songwriter. And we had a great time together and he was part of this whole thing that we did. And he said, you know, if you're ever in the South, I live in Johnson City. Um, there are people there that you would really like to know. Why don't you? So if you come through, look me up. This is in 1973. I got to Johnson City in 1975. And I, I really didn't see Ed in between, but he stayed with me. Also, I had found my way to an organizational center in Tennessee called Highlander, the Highlander Educational Center. Um, and... Uh, I had met uh, several people from Johnson City. A group of them were making a, a video company back in the day with really primitive video equipment, Super 8 film, and uh, one, they had access to the public television channel, which has a requirement to have local generation of material. And in many places, that local is a, is a camera that, that is trained on a clock and a barometer. But these folks were running a thing called Broadside TV. Okay. Reflecting the old print thing of a broadside, you know, you put your thing on, it's like blogging, you put your thing on a broadside and send, and post it around in the community. So they were doing video coverage of PTA meetings and uh, local wrestling matches and a variety of other things, utilizing access to public television channels. And they were getting some dollars, and so they had a space, and they offered us to have rehearsal space in their space. Um, they had a, a big warehouse that they, they weren't really using, so we could be make make our work in their in their warehouse, which is where we went. So they drew me to Johnson City for both the what they were doing and the resources they had that they were willing to share in, in exchange for what we were bringing as resources. Um, and I also met. Uh, as part of that group, a woman named Joe Carson, who was a poet and a writer. And um, it wasn't long before Joe was part of the company that I was building. 
um, as a writer and as a performer and as an ensemble member. And following Americomedia, the next play that we made was uh, called The Momentary Art of State Making. Um, and we opened it on the 4th of July, 1976 in, John in Jones, uh, Tennessee, the capital of the state of Franklin. I imagined that I was sort of done at that point. I had gotten a small amount of money to uh, support this effort and we were just about out of it. And I had no idea what was going to happen next, but I, I wasn't thinking about any long-term thing. I was simply trying to figure out a way to do something in the, in the moment that was worthwhile. We were in the middle of the, of the performance and it came up a big rainstorm. And I was, I was one of the actors in the, in the performance, uh, sort of a narrator type. And, and I said, okay, fine, we'll hold for the rain. We'll all take shelter. We're outside on the, uh, on the main street. I said, we'll, we'll be back. This will pass. We'll be back. And the, the audience said, no, no, no. This is our story. You keep telling it. We're, we're here to see this event. And I, I was like, I was totally taken aback. And of course, we kept on going. But I was told in that moment that I was where I was supposed to be. And that this was way more than just me making some theater. I had been working in the in the Lort system. I had my equity card. I was a stage manager, and we were begging for audiences to come to a premiere performances of premiere runs of Lanford Wilson's extraordinary plays. But people wouldn't come, or if they did come, they were really ornery. And if you were two minutes late, they were all about where's your professionalism and blah blah blah. blah all that stuff. And I, I was tired of that. I didn't care for that. It just didn't feel like a healthy world. Loved the people making the theater. Andrew Wilson, brilliant. Uh, Davy Marlon Jones, brilliant. Um, but the, the, the sphere, though, the, the environment was not brilliant. It was painful. Mm. And to stand in the rain and have an audience say, please keep going. We're, you're telling our story. Just was like, okay. We were there 25 years. Wow. That's amazing. That's wonderful. So you mentioned just bringing in Spolin's book and just starting with some exercises, but were you taking, and you said you were also very green, perhaps around, you know, directing and what it meant to maybe write and create at that degree from just that starting point but were you taking inspiration from any other sort of organizations like bread and puppet you know i think were founded in the seven in 1970 and and san francisco mime troupe had been around since around the 50s and so i'm wondering were you were you feeling like you were taking action in the same vein as they might be i was uh aware of um teatro campesino and bread and puppet i had never seen them i was aware of the living theater. I had never seen them when I started. When we were touring America Media, they were, living theater was performing in uh, Judson Church when we were in New York. And I went to see a show of, of one of their shows. And I, it was startling and inspiring in the uh, sense of how remarkably powerful and non a form of formal it was. It, it was not a conventional play as I had been trained to think about what is theater and what is a play. And, and the kind of immediacy of event they were looking for in their performance. And I, I did have a, a really inspiring a, a relationship with Bob Alexander, who was in 
DC running a living stage, which was a, an improv community-based group that he was creating under the umbrella of arena stage. And I went to a living stage at the time was the ensemble were orienting themselves around the anti-war movement and particularly with vets who were against the war. It was a, it was a multiracial company, but their, their focus of work, at least what I saw, was about uh, the anti-war movement and particularly through the eyes of, of veterans who had been in Vietnam. And I saw a performance and the storyline, and this is sort of, you know, looking back on it, a sort of a Boal situation, um, kind of a forum theater kind of thing, but I don't think it was directly that. What they told was a story of a, a veteran who had lost his arm and was, and, and was uh, at a medical discharge, um, honorable and was coming home and he, he and his wife had not seen one another in whatever it was, a year or whatever. And she was upstairs in her apartment and he was, he was coming up to see her for the first time and they were coming up the stairs. And it was the first time that she actually physically understood no arm in my husband. And they stopped the play and asked if, asked it, what the audience thought and, and how, how would you, complete this play. Here we are, and this couple's coming together, and it's a nice setup, and it's a good storyline, and we care about these people, and now here they are, just confronting, and there's this shock in the, in the, in the, well, between them, both of them, because the wife is seeing, but the husband is experiencing the, his wife's shock, and this is this moment of, oh, God, and one of the, one of my company members put their hand up and said, I, I want his, his arm to come back, and they accepted that, and they went back and started the, the story over again. And they, they were coming up the stairs. And this man who we know has lost his arm, he's grieving and he's in pain and all this stuff. And the wife is at the top and afraid to see him and all this stuff that had been set up and in the stairs. And he sees her and his, his outpouring of joy to see her. He went with both arms and... And everybody in the room just, it was like a whole thing of, of theatrical event. It superseded logic and went to real human event. Of course, he's not going to get his arm back, but his love gave him a full capacity to embrace mm. and overcome that moment. And it was so clear and it didn't have to get spelled out. It didn't have to have a whole bunch of, of language to... Th it was just a, a moment when everybody realized in, in that day and time, we had access to love is all that matters. Love is all we need. And that was a moment of joy. Hmm. The, that's amazing. But it wasn't that, but not necessarily rooted in Boal. They just said, hey, we're going to joker the scene. We're going to change the scene and, and you get a choice and 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 we're going to do it. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They had. They didn't have, they just said, boom, this is it. And there was a joker in the sense someone said, hey, stop, let's talk and what do, what do you want? But I don't know whether they were working directly with, with Boal at that point, 1970. That would probably have been. Boal wouldn't have published Theater of the Oppressed for another eight or nine years. Bob Alexander is a hero for the ensemble and devised movement. He, he, he is a major piece of the history of that world. I, 
I don't think I ever met Bob. I, my experience was with his company and in a, in a performance. And it, it was incredibly inspiring to me in the short term. I had no, I'd never heard of Boal. I didn't hear from Boal for another 20 years. Wow. Um, and I, but it's very possible. I mean, the fact is, is that Freire, Boal's mentor, was aware of uh, and, and modeled his work on the work at Highlander and Miles Horton, who was the founder of Highlander. It wasn't until they were both in their 80s that they met mm. and, and put together that extraordinary book called We Make the Path by Walking. Freire, Paulo Freire and Miles Horton. And of course, Boal was, was in a sense the next generation, but he was, he was an advocate and a proponent of, of Freire's work, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Right. Um, so who knows who knew who, who, knew who back in the 70s, but um, I can see this looking backwards. I can see that whether it was simply by osmosis or actual conversation, they were operating in very, very similar fashion. Yeah. Um, with some brilliant act. Yeah. And all motivated by political or, or socially motivated work and content. That's all really, this is and all political and also understanding that it needed to be not in the theater space that, you know, in the, in the, um, palaces of, of culture, but in the streets and in the community uh, or communities where these things make a difference. I just want to say that in terms of, of references or, or inspirations, it was not uh, until a bit later, maybe five years into our journey uh, with the road company, which by the way, started out as the American Revolutionary Road Company. And uh, that worked until July 5th, 1976. <laughs> <laughs> And at that point, it was seemed expedient to draw the American Revolutionary Park mm -hmm. uh, in East Tennessee. The moment had passed on the 4th of July, and we were, I was realizing I wanted to be here for the long term, and the road company made no sense. Gotcha. But, um, we were about five years working with Spolin in the, in the uh, rehearsals room, um, developing play after play, using Spolin te techniques. And I kind of ran out of steam with Spolin. I was feeling that there was more to be done than what was happening with my understanding of, of the exercises as, as I got them from the book. I never did a workshop with Spolin. But in the meantime, we had been successful with working with other theater companies in the Southeast to form Alternate Roots. And Alternate Roots was built out of necessity, but it also became for me and for I know many, many other people, it became lifeblood, each other, and recognizing that we were, we were all part of the same team, if you will. We, we were doing different kinds of work, but, but we all had a shared vision for something that was important to us, and we were learning from one another. And uh, one of the things that happened at Roots was that we would bring in people uh, from either within Roots or outside of Roots who we wanted to hear from very specifically, and a fellow named Steve Kinto, I've mentioned already, uh, was uh, invited to come in and offer a workshop during a week, uh, our annual meeting. And Steve had worked with Joe Chafin, and um, I'm not exactly sure if Steve was at some point part of Joe Chafin's open theater or theater project. So he brought the work, the experimentation that Joe Chafin was working on, and it was absolutely informative to me. It, it was answering to the questions that I had about Poland, 
Um, it opened up improvisation, how to survive the laugh line, um, because the laugh line is always the way out of the hot, out of the heat. And actors, are, or some actors, are quick to go to the laugh line um, to get the laugh, but also it takes them right out of the heat of the moment and, and releases the heat. So how do you dig deeper? How do you go beyond that? How do you find out what's underneath that? in terms of improvisational exploration. And um, Joe Chaikin opened that up. And what I learned was not Joe Chaikin, it was Steve Kemp, who, who studied with Joe Chaikin. And uh, the work that uh, we were able to do after that was exponentially better, richer, far more satisfying, both the, the actors, company, the ensemble, and the audience. We were making much better. And the next place that I personally grew, like that sort of quantum leap, uh, was my exploration of Impro by T.T. Um and who, who upended a lot of what school and taking were doing in, in a very, very different approach to improv. And so it exploded the sense uh, enormously. I'm glad you jumped into roots because i did want to ask you about that you know so so you're in this moment and you see the need to bring everyone together who are some of those initial members what overall did alternate roots do for you in that moment and and maybe if you can sort of fast forward it to now and how is it what is it doing now yeah well it's pretty amazing it's an astonishing uh, it's an astonishing history in some ways it's rooted in highlander highlander was and is a gathering of people. They're very devoted to the idea of people learning from one another. And in order to do that, they they maintain relationships, they maintain lists of people, contact information. Um, and they can, when a situation arises, they, they know people to talk to and to bring in from anywhere that might be in appropriate. They're a school without a faculty, but their faculty is people all over really at this point all over the world who can respond to particular need and offer wisdom and practical advice to people who are looking for help. And our, the whole premise there is that people learn when they need it, when they need it. So Highlander had a sense of artists in the Southeast, and particularly in Appalachia, who were using their art as, as activists, not necessarily as organizers, although some were, but as activists, as you know, making a poem, speaking a poem coming out of out of the community of the coal fields can be a mobilizing thing. It can capture people's hearts and bring them together. And artists were doing that and aware of that. And Highlander knew about that. And um, they actually called for a gathering of writers in Appalachia. Um, and that the resulting organization still exists, the Southern Appalachian Writers Conference. And with the success of that particular event, folks at Highlander uh, wrote a grant to call together theater art in the South. I learned this story, or I, I, I learned this aspect of this story from um, Ron Short, who was at the time the interim executive director of Highlander. Uh, he became an ensemble member of the road, of Roadside Theater. But at the time, he was um, working as a staff person at, at Highlander. And um, he called me and Joe Carson when they got this small grant to see if Joe might be able to do the organizing of a 
to call together a conference of theater people in the Southeast. And we agreed. Joe was in the company. I said, yes, this makes sense. And they had some money to pay Joe. So it was a good deal. And Joe and I worked uh, together and she was the operative who went out in, in the field and talked to people and sent letters and made phone calls and gathered people. And it was an open call. Any, any theater could come. And she reached out to the outdoor drama people, the summer stock people, the academic people, and as many uh, theater efforts that were happening as she could find. And the reality was that the community-based artists that were making, intending to make a living as a profession in the Southeast, really didn't have any organization amongst themselves. The theater organization in the Southeast was primarily the um, Southeastern Theater Conference, was an academic uh, uh, organization. And it, it related to the profession in as much as it was trying, generally speaking, the academic units were trying to get summer work for their students. So they related or they related with the outdoor drama people um, and offered audition time. But other than that, uh, there wasn't really a, an orientation to the support of the institutions that were making. It was really in support of the academics. So when we gathered at Highlander, and some folks saw who, who other folks were and decided to go to them and left Friday afternoon before we even started. Um, oh, a bunch of hippies or whatever it is, and this is what I do, so you provide. And the people that were left were people uh, who were primarily starting their own companies in various communities throughout the South. Uh, roadside theater was there, play group uh, from Knoxville was there, the Academy Theater from Atlanta was there. The uh, Birmingham Children's Theater was there. And I don't have a full list in front of me, but you know, there was this company, New World Theater. There were various companies who, who were curious and wanted to know more. And we spent, a, we spent that long weekend together. And one of the key moments in that weekend was we stopped talking and went swimming. Yeah, so, so what I was driving at basically is that Roots began to grow when we started playing together. Um, and the shape of Roots, the organizational shape of Roots emerged out of play. We decided, for example, that we didn't want to have the bureaucracy of titles. So the person who stepped up to say that they would be, they would take responsibility for getting certain tasks done uh, was called a supreme carrot and we were making a salad and and uh, leanne davis was a supreme carrot and we all had little vegetable names in order to say okay i need to be the cucumber and you're the salad dressing and so forth and and we also in that spirit of curiosity and play we decided that we wanted an organization in which all the members voted. There wasn't, there wasn't going to be a board of eight, six or eight people who make these determinations, but that the whole membership is the, is the governing body. And at the time we represented the, with the collective of, of all the company's members, we were probably, uh, I don't know, 80 people, maybe that, maybe less, 50 people. But that premise was built into the actual charter and, and bylaws and roots now is a 45-year-old not-for-profit organization with a board of 200. And uh, we are, in my opinion, an experiment in, in participatory democracy. Um, it's, it's hard work. 
Um, it calls on more than just getting my services for my vote. I'm, I'm engaged in the organization. Um, I'm part of it. Um, and um, I make a commitment to the welfare of the organization. And that has sustained us through some very hard times, the least of which is not enough money. The real hard times is when there are serious aesthetic, social, political misconnections. Mm. And uh, we've had many, it's, it's oftentimes thought of as being typical of roots that somewhere along the line, somebody's going to do something and the whole, the whole thing gets thrown up in the air. There are moments during the history of roots where things get thrown up in the air and, and sometimes it's been around one thing or another, but one particular one is, and, and not uncommon, was around race. And, and how, how do we understand what it means to be uh, working across differences of race and gender and so forth and so on? And how do we do that? Well, <clears throat> one particular moment, I don't need to get into the depth of it, but rather than shouting, Roots had actually developed a culture of listening and helping rather than accusing and I mean, yes, we were accusing. Yes, people were hurt. Yes, they hollered and spoke up. But somewhere inside of that, there was an understanding that we are, this is part of being together and we need to find our way to it together. So I actually reached out to Michael Rode to see if he could ask you a question. And this is actually a question from him that I'm going to pose to you right now that relates to maybe right where the direction that you're going in. Knowing that Alternate Roots was always a social change-based collection of artists, but one whose relationship to social justice internally and externally has evolved over the decades, if you could time machine back to the circle of folks at Alternate Roots beginnings and offer counsel, what might you all offer in this specific area? I think the counsel I would give with hindsight uh, is trust yourself. A lot of the agony of the work is not is is doubt in the face of trouble but the reality that we can look at over the course of the last decades is that we have um, grown we have learned from one another and we've been able to not only accept the challenge but but begin really meeting the challenge of a plural pluralistic democratic group i don't think that there's counsel to be offered to avoid the struggle <laughs> we might like to think that but but we had to learn our way through it. We had to learn our way to where we needed, where we imagined going. Because in some ways, we never imagined going anywhere. We, and th but in some ways, this is what's really important. We just started doing. We didn't plan on how to be a perfect organization. We just started doing. So the first thing we did was to play at, at the swimming hole. And we realized at that point, oh, wait a second. It's fun working with you guys. But we haven't seen, no one knew anybody else's company. They did we were all entire strangers to one another in terms of our aesthetics and our, our actual practices. So the next thing we needed to do was to get together with our shows and share, share our shows with one another. So we, we planned a little festival, which was primarily for, we were our own audience, right? We were trying to learn each other, but it was done in the context of a public event. So there were, there was public call, call for audience, which was real appropriate. But, but the, but the deal was we just started performing for one another. And, and we learned that way, as opposed to, okay, so you guys are a bunch of performers. How can we help? Oh, you need some more money. We'll figure out how to get more money. No, 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 no. No, let's play together. 
And that was a, a fundamental principle that was never articulated. It was simply, it was the obvious thing for people in the room and we did it. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there weren't under, uh, assumptions inside that play that were <laughs> racist, misogynistic, anti-democratic, all the things that come with human beings. Yeah. What I'm hearing you say is that you wouldn't have been as strong of an organization if you hadn't had the struggle that you had, and if you wouldn't have had the struggle to work through those things and have the conversations you needed to have and and face, you know, like you said about the taken work of like not letting a laugh line let you out of it. How do you keep going deeper and deeper? Yes. Yeah. I also reached out to uh, Jerry Stropnicki. Oh, yeah. And I asked him the same sort of questions. Like if you had Bob Leonard, what would you ask him? <laughs> and what he brought up was that ensemble theater is so important as a movement if nothing else because of the diverse ways in, of theater making jerry continues today ensemble theater feels like a very vital sector of the american theater and the makeup with its dedication to devising diversity and community art and social change you also founded the network of ensemble theaters and so can you speak to how Network of Ensemble Theaters and Alternate Roots cross-pollinated in these two important movements. I can't uh, run the list of people, but um, Lisa Mount came to a meeting, of early meeting of the Network of Ensemble Theaters, and just turned to me and said, it's amazing how many Roots people are in this meeting. Carlton Turner, Linda Paris-Bailey, um, uh, Lisa, um, and so forth and so on. There were people in, in Roots history, there were people particularly from California who found out about Roots, came to Roots, and then wanted for Roots to become national. And there were people in Roots who wanted for Roots to provide a national platform for Roots members. And so there was, a, we, we became kind of aware of a tension between the regional aspects of Roots, being the Southeastern or Southern organization, and the desire for the kind of work that we were allowing ourselves to do to expand to a national level. And we kept our eye on the regional because it was really quite a definition. And we knew how difficult it was to, to organize at that level. And the idea of, of going now several quantums larger seemed absolutely impossible. But what we did want to do is suggest the possibility of having uh, sibling organizations in other regions in the country. That never has happened exactly, although I think there's a relationship of common spirit with some of the regional organizations uh, that exist, like the New England Federation of the Arts. Roots never aspired to becoming a national organization, but the eight or ten uh, ensembles that that Jerry basically gathered together to talk about a, a network of ensemble theaters became a, a more manageable national effort because we, were, we, we weren't trying to supplant TCG, sort of the whole of theater at the national level, uh, but rather the sector of the ensemble, which has its own kind of definition, self-defined. That felt good. And I, I know that I brought my experience with Roots into uh, the conversations that we, we had over the course of many years, going from, let's do a network so we can get a computer. That was, in a sense, the first effort. We were trying to get some dollars from Apple so that we could get a computer for every member of the nascent organization, so that we could actually communicate with each other via uh, the computer world. We didn't know what we were talking about. 
right? That we had this sense that we could just plug in and everything would be great. Um, but it was basically the, the dollar potential there was was around networking via the computer. And as we continued to talk, and we found a little bit of money here and there to come together to have conferences. Before we were an organization, it was really a planning process. We would consistently play. We were here people that were open to joshing and playing and, and talking about the work and maybe bringing something or a puppet or doing this and that. And that exchange, aesthetic exchange, uh, lay at the, at the heart of the effort uh, the way it had with Root. And it felt very, in that sense, similar. So my when, when uh, Carlton or Linda or I would talk about a Root's reference, it was informative to the thinking of folks who were in other regions of the country and hadn't had that experience. And so there was a lot of interplay in the planning, in the conceiving and in planning. And I, I think that there continues to be a real resonance um, between the two organizations. Roots has expanded way beyond theater. It at some point formally uh, divorced the idea of, of Roots as an acronym. Roots was originally Regional Organization of Theater South. And uh, uh, the pun is wonderful. The acronym is, is outdated. Um, we've got poets and dancers and musicians and, and hip-hop artists and all, all kinds of folks, visual arts, all kinds of people. And we've kind of departed from organizational orientation, which is, I think, um, there are people who want to have that come back. So right now, there are no organizational members of group. Everybody is an individual member. You know, I kind of want to look back at the community practice where we sort of started and think about, do you have a sense of where we're going with civic practice and community-minded work? There's a lot to be unpacked in that question. I just went to a concert last night of Rhiannon uh, Giddens, you know? No. Um, extraordinary. I didn't know of her either. She's a, a Genius Award recipient, a musician of extraordinary African-American, uh, North Carolinian by, by birth, who plays and sings. She trained as an opportunity, Italian. She plays the banjo, fiddle. She's now partnered with a percussionist and pianist who trained as a jazz musician. And she writes music that is so powerful expression of the struggle around race, struggle, what it means to be African-American in the United States right now. She writes music that just it opens her heart and mind in the same room. She is an activist, and it is pure art. I don't think you can separate them. When I was coming up, there was an appeal to some folk, myself included, to instrumentalize art that was in support of a particular event, like a like a demonstration. So street street theater that that would augment the ideological position of the organizers of, a, of an anti-war movement demonstration or feminism, women's movement. Civil rights movement. But that instrumentalized function of, of art uh, is not defining of art as political versus the non political art. I deeply believe that all art is political. Um, and the imaginary that, that any given piece of art may be operating with, either are, uh, on the bus or off the bus, <laughs> but they are always imaginary. They are, they are moving the imagination of the audience. And that is in itself a subversive act. As soon as someone sees something differently from the way they woke up in the morning because of realizing someone else has a different imaginative experience, um, I've changed. Now, 
The art that reinforces the status quo is just as political as the art that subverts it. We need to understand that. Can you go into that a little bit? Well, the support of the status quo is a political act. It may be less visible because we accept the, the, the set of, of imaginary that are within the form as being quote-unquote normal. So it's not subversive because it reinforces what I accept as being the way I think the world is. But that is a political act. It may be uh, unintended as political act. It may simply be the consequence of, of, an, of an uncritiqued awareness on the part of the, of the art maker. But it is nonetheless political. And likewise, the, the artist who is interested in, in subverting or, or challenging the status quo or proposing a, a, a viable alternative must also be highly critical of my own assumptions. And how do I, how do, I do that? So those are the things that we need to be looking at as opposed to trying to make a distinction between political and non-political art or the art that is based on, you know, sort of proposes a social justice. I mean, in, in some real degree, Henrik Ibsen was a social art social justice activist, but he didn't fall under that category. He wasn't looked at from that point of view as distinguished from uh, some other form. It's what it drove him. Um, and I think that's as true today as it was then. I think that, that artists are people who can't help but give expression to something that is then shared and find resonance with, with audience. The, the real question has to do with how, how do we continue to develop a critique in an environment that's pluralist. That's the challenge. I mean, we have to, to, be, to be a little provocative. We have a brilliant artist right now who is um, uh, doing performance art to what I think of as the great peril of our country. What Donald Trump is doing is brilliant performance art. You, you might say that he's not working for social justice, but there are those who say it's social justice is a problem of people. And, and we can address the and critique the, the um, imaginary and, and the proposals and so forth. But the form of art making that he's doing is brilliant. That notion crossed my mind sometime in 2019 that I had the moment of like, if this is an act, and he's got a lot of folks subverted and he's got a lot of folks believing whether they you know and and but it, but at some point i thought it was going all going to come out in the wash would be a big surprise that this is all an act yeah i'm i'm <laughs> provocative or not i'm i i, I subscribe with you i'm with you <laughs> i i don't think this is a particularly ingenious thought i think people all over the place particularly uh, performance artists are really oh i know what he's doing i can see what he's doing and uh, but that then comes down to the challenge of of how do we bring into the public sphere critique? How do we understand critique? How do we understand deliberation as opposed to debate? Can we come together to deliberate on our own future or are we debating about which future we need to take? Those are two different things to do. And, and we're being body checked into debate, divisive rhetoric. I don't think we have to rise to that stage, but it's awfully difficult not to. Is that the artist's job right now? Is to continue to reflect and, and demonstrate and bring this idea forward of, of subverting and, and challenging what's already existing? Well, I wouldn't call it the job, but it's what artists do. And, and I say that in the, in the sense of inclusion of, of the whole panorama, not just those artists that were proposed to not be Trumpian um, or not be, uh, anyway, 
on, on an ideological trend. But if this is what artists do, and we need to become better and better and better, not only in our craft, but in our capacity to, to critique our own assumptions. What's underneath my, uh, my, my choice? And looking back at Roots, for example, there was a, there was a considerable amount of white male assumption sets in the organizing of groups at the beginning. And we had to work our way through that. We, the, the difficult thing about assumptions is that they're assumed, <laughs> right? And, right? and the way things are, and of course we'll do it this way. And everybody says, yes, of course we will. You know, down the road, we say, oh, oh. And, and, but then you've got a fight going on that, that's built on something that wasn't critiqued at the beginning. And, and you start dealing with the, with the, super, the superficial level rather than the depth of it. How do you get to that? that deeper question all the time. That's, that's the one that's challenging. Um, so I don't think it's the job, but it's what artists do. We, we, we see something, we give expression to it. If no one recognizes it, recognizes it as anything that we connect with, then the artist doesn't have an audience. Um, but if there is an audience for them, then there's a resonation and, and that whole thing begins to advance inside the art experience and then perhaps outside the art experience as a organizing tool or mobilizing tool or whatever. But the, the challenge is in finding ways to really critique the assumptions underneath and within any given artistic expression. Bob, thank you so much for your time today. This, is, this has been enlightening on, in so many ways. And just thank you so much for the depth and the breadth and the conversation of your conversation today. I truly appreciate it. And I truly appreciate reconnecting with you after so many years. This has been, this is exactly uh, what I hoped it would be. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Well, thank you very much for the questions and for thinking to, to call on me. Um, this is, this is work that is uh, a part of uh, a whole huge number of people and, People have given their lives for it. I think of John O'Neill, uh, who who was absolutely unflagging in his faith in the human experience of art making and connecting with people with through art, through storytelling, through telling truth that can be heard. And I I just think that what you're doing is really important to be gathering stories and to be sharing those stories out and and to recognize that this is something that is. It is hugely uh, horizontal in its, in its strength. Yeah, in not so many words, I'm just hoping to catalog some of these stories and, and demonstrate some of the paths that we've been on. And, and one of the reasons I really wanted to connect with you is because, you know, we're on this path of social justice in America right now and ensemble theater in particular. But where we've come from with ensemble theater is, to, is, is social justice related as well. And to me, it's, it's all, it's all one, but like you said, so for, yeah, as you said, it's very horizontal. It's, it, we're still, it's just a continuation of the line. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for your time and uh, have a great rest of your week. And I hope we can connect again soon. I hope that that does happen, Jeff. Thank you so much. First, a special thanks to Quasimondo Physical Theater for letting me use their Zoom line for this uninterrupted interview. Second, a big thanks to Michael Rode, an interviewee from Season 2, and Jerry Stropnicki, a thought partner on various projects with me, for offering up the questions to Bob, both of whom are board members at the Network of Ensemble Theaters. 
right out of the gates with Bob. He's answering the question of Ensemble, and he ties it once again to Jaoulet's thoughts in Season 3, Episode 1. The idea of Ensemble in music. I love that. It really has me thinking about the cross-pollination that we need to learn from other mediums while thinking about theater and Ensemble-based work. Where is Ensemble in other processes? In surgical theaters, in organized sports, in animals. Let's keep thinking. Where can we draw more and more connections about the principles of ensemble work? I also like what he has to say about a company, not in the sense of a business. This had a really strong tie for me to our interview with Koya Paz of Free Street Theater in Season 1. Ever since talking to her, I haven't been able to bring myself to say company about a theater or an artist unless I know it's already in their name, as it has such a strong connection to corporate meanings. There's got to be some really fascinating entomology of the word devising, right? This is not the first time that we've heard folks mention Violas Bolin or Augusto Boal as a means of making work that is improvisational at first. Furthermore, Bob invokes the living theater as well. Joseph Chaikin and the quote about how to survive the laugh line in some of the social justice-related works was so meaningful. Don't get out of the hot moment. Stay in it, which is a really good rule for life as well. Speaking of living theater, speaking of living theater and Joseph Chaikin, uh, a few episodes from now we'll be speaking with Karen Malpied, a playwright who worked very closely with the living theater folks. I do hope you hang out for that convo in the coming weeks. Last thing I'll say is that I really appreciate how Alternate Roots began with a sense of play. As Bob said, the first thing we did was to play at the swimming hole. Yes. I hope that we all have that space to learn about each other as people before we learn how to support one another in our goals. All right, folks, here we are, the end of another episode. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me on this path down the road of ensemble history. And I look forward to having you join us again on From the Ground Up. This has been another episode of From the Ground Up. You can find, like, and follow this podcast at FTGU underscore pod or me, Jeffrey Moser, at Ensemble underscore Ethnographer on Instagram and at Kinetic Mimetic on Twitter. Think you or someone you know ought to be on the show? Send us an email at FTGUpod at gmail.com. We also accept fan mail and requests. Access to all of our past episodes can be found on my website, jeffreymoser.com, as well as howround.com. The audio bed was created by Kiran Videla. You can find him on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, and flutesatdawn.org. This podcast is produced as a contribution to the HowlRound Theater Conference. You can find more episodes of this series and other HowlRound podcasts in our feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Simplecast, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to search HowlRound Theater Commons Podcasts and subscribe to receive new episodes. If you love this podcast, post a rating and write a review on those platforms. This helps other people find us. You can find a transcript for the episode along with a lot of other progressive and disruptive content on HowlRound.com. Have an idea for an exciting podcast, essay, or TV event the theater community needs to hear? Visit HowlRound.com and submit your ideas to the Commons. Commons.